It must be Thursday. Welcome to Learning Unwrapped, the podcast about your most important life skill, learning. My guest today is living a life full of opportunities to make a difference in the world of education. From leading New Jersey's second largest school district as the Associate Superintendent of Curriculum and Instruction for Jersey City, to mentoring and teaching future leaders, to infusing the arts into education, to publishing her insights, most recently through co-authoring a chapter in the book, Teaching in the Post-COVID-19 Era. And that chapter is responding to adult learner student needs in the COVID-19 pandemic, modifying online graduate courses in education to, and I love this part, seize teachable moments. Now, to me, she's best known as a woman I've known for decades as our paths keep crossing in the world of education. Please welcome Dr. Adele Makula. Thank Hi. you, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon again. And it's um, so fun to see you. Thank you. And I'm excited to talk about this topic with you. I know. And, it, and you know, we were the, the, the uh, our listeners should know that we did some uh, warm up discussion in the back and we've decided that we could just go on for like four, four days, probably, and not even take a breath on this. <laughs> I, th I think actually, Adele, you and I are living parallel lives because when the pandemic closed schools, my consulting company, IDE Corp, immediately pivoted to providing remote support to teachers and leaders who needed how to learn to provide high quality learning experiences remotely. And then during the pandemic, I published my book, Reinventing the Classroom Experience, Learning Anywhere, Anytime. Meanwhile, you're taking a hard look at the university level experience, particularly in the area of graduate education for those who are in the field of education. So you were working with your students who were either teaching or um, leading in schools at the time. And now, you know, we're getting to the point at IDE, we're working on designing virtual schools and defining what the virtual experience should look like. So clearly I'm excited about our conversation today. So I'm gonna start with a hard question. If you had this to do all over again, on March 13th, 2020, when you had graduate students who were physically attending classes and now all of a sudden you have to pivot to remote, what would you have done differently? That's a really hard question to answer. Because I think there um, are a couple of ways to approach that. Um, one, I would say there are some things that reflecting back now, we would have been forced to do exactly the same way. The idea on that Friday the 13th was to have our graduate programs and all of the students involved feel comfortable that the programs would continue seamlessly um, with the same expectations that we would be meeting with them. Um, but the unknowing part of what the pandemic brought was supposed to be a short-term situation. So I think um, what I would have done the same would be a lot of um, emailing and supporting students that we were going to continue and we were going to find a pathway through this together. Some of the things I would do would have done differently was um, to understand better the short-term implications that the pandemic held for our students. As Nancy, you said, they are educators. Some of them were school administrators and district leaders, 
who are, you know, enrolled in graduate education, master's level programs or doctoral programs. Um, and they were now managing, as you said, their own learning. They had to carry forth on a moment's notice and ma manage their entire school or district situation, which was even more critical. Um, and then thirdly, since their own personal family, children or other adults might now have all been home, they had to manage that as a third um, arm of trying to juggling and balancing. So I think as we made our way through this, that humanity approach um, to understanding everybody's personalized journey um, in the short term really did take um, me to a different place. I think- um, we yeah, let, me, let me ask you a question on that because I love the idea that we had to stop and think about the humanity uh, piece of this. I fear as we're now heading into kind of post COVID, we hope um, at all levels, whether it's K-12 up at the university level, we now have this almost compelling sense of needing to catch up. And I fear that we are shifting to just cramming information into people's heads. How are we going to maintain that humanity going forward? This may be part of my personal beliefs, but I know they talk about learning loss or there being gaps even in you know our adult education graduate courses and a doctoral program that was just getting started. Um, I was, I still am a fervent believer that people learn as they go through situations. Amen. I don't think there's a way that we're going to go back and teach eighth grade algebra, you know, in a cramped situation or me requiring my graduate students to complete the exact same assignments just because they were in my syllabus before the pandemic is the way to say, oops, you know, you get to a final grade. So I think the humanity of the situation became more that um, there is this personalized, I want to say self-directed journey for the student, the adult student, the young student, yes. but also that we have to trust um, and, you know, um, advocate for them taking the lead in their own learning. And I think as schools go forward, where all we talk about now is SEL, social emotional learning. And we know that if those needs are not met and encourage, you know, those competencies encouraged self-management, self-directedness, um, I think given the way the world is now, not just education as an entity, um, people are going to need to continue to figure out how to do this better for themselves and for you know, their families and for their colleagues at work. Um, I think there's less control and less directives that may be needed and more conversation about how can we get this done effectively and efficiently and using some new tools in a new way and still accomplish either the goals of an assignment or the goals of a project that I would have included in my course syllabus. Um, but again, when I keep talking about the humanity, I mean, people really were managing, you know, deaths, illnesses themselves that have long lasting effects for some people. Um, and I just think both from the physical and from the mental health status, um, education can't be as rigid, as rigid or as compartmentalized as we've been looking at this in the past. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of each semester, we would put out a syllabus with these assignments and dates due. And I think we were teaching to the course um, 
Exactly. Regardless of the students. And I think what this taught me personally, and I know my co-colleagues who co-authored this article with me, um, John Melendez and Christine Harrington, we all recognize that these modifications and changes in our actions were going to bring about changes in the actions of our students. All right, let's just take a break to give a shout out to your co-authors and learn more about them. Adele, tell us about the co-authors of the article and how did you go about the process of writing this book? Because much of what we're speaking about is a combination of your three brains coming together. I was fortunate enough to co-write this article with two of my fine colleagues from New Jersey City University, Dr. Christine Harrington and Dr. John Melendez. Christine is an associate professor and John is a professor in the Ed Leadership Department. And both Christine and John are the co-chairs of NJCU's recently established doctoral program in community college leadership. But again, just like we're having this conversation now, um, a lot of this conversation happened either in our department meetings, which then became virtual. And I must say, we never had a Zoom department meeting prior to the pandemic, even though we talked about it prior. Um, and ongoingly, just as colleagues, we were struggling with the same um, situations, even though I was in the, the master's degree programs um, strand, and they were both working diligently to get this new doctoral program for community college leadership off and running. Um, so they both have a wide range of experiences and a lot of expertise, um, a lot of institutional history about the way higher ed operates um, and how we could navigate a new pathway um, for our students in both programs based on you know these new needs of the pandemic. But as you look at the title of the chapter and this idea of teachable, seizing teachable moments, I think we yeah, I love that. read into it the idea that um, what we learned or would have learned by writing this chapter and collaborating and the ideas and the actions we connectedly put forth um, would withstand the test of time and hopefully would be sustainable beyond just this immediate period of you know, modifying for the pandemic. And I can say with certainty that, um, you know, some of the actions that we put into place might seem pretty simple, but they did change the, the nature and the, the navigation of um, the way I know we all three personally interacted with students. I mean, we certainly believe in that relationship with students, but it became much more frequent, more comfortable, more um, familiar in terms of, you know, supporting people online through formal and informal situations over the, 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 um, the period of time. And we're finding that shifting over to that remote world it, it, now, when we are setting up, let's say, um, workshops and work sessions with school leaders, they're even saying, well, instead of in person, could we do it virtually? Because I think people realize there's a lot of flexibility in working virtually. I mean, if, I could have a consultant work with a with a um, an administrator on site all day, or I could have them break up the day into hours across the course of a month, where we can have these more seizing, you know, teachable moment times. So I do think that 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 technology piece is going to change us forever. I hope in terms of thinking, how can we use technology to do what we do differently? You know, I used to say, 
and I just stumbled upon um, an article online that I wrote in 1999. It was print in 1999. And it's all about technology to use or infuse. And I was trying to make the point that we don't simply use technology to replace what we what we do in person. We need to infuse it in a way that it becomes a part of the fabric of learning. And we we use it in ways that allow us to do things we could never do before. And when I read the article, I'm like, damn if that article isn't as fresh today as it was in 1999. But I think that, that the pandemic is pushing at that. So talk a little bit about that technology aspect and how you saw that being used differently in this uh, in these times. I think for adults in the education field, right, most people had a laptop or some kind of mobile device that they were sort of using technology. I think what the pandemic and the after effects have fostered is the idea that um, people are much more flexible um, and just more spontaneous. Before, you know, we all had these calendars where we had calls scheduled and we had advisement hours. Now, if, you know, you needed to have a conversation with a student, it would be like, do you want to jump on a Zoom? Um, and it was it was spontaneous, but it was person to person as best it could be through the virtual media. But there is a difference between being on the phone, just hearing and being face to face. So I think the technology has, again, made it more. I don't want to use the word intimate in any other way, but face to face kind of seeing each other. You can read context better. You can see what people are feeling. Um, And but the spontaneity of people's willingness to behave their way through things differently, I think has been significant. Um, Even with um, class sessions um, and added these support sessions that um, we did as informal voluntary sessions for students, I found my students were coming on anyway. They wanted to network with their colleagues. They wanted to just hear if they had nothing to ask or they weren't concerned about anything. They wanted to hear what other people were involved in when we're asking. So I think this virtual community piece is here to stay Mm. for things like meetings and professional learning opportunities, professional development wise. It's a really beautiful tool that, again, I'll speak specifically for New Jersey, but I'm sure it's even more manifested in larger, more spread out kind of states. People in New Jersey were driving, you know, for two or three hours, an hour and a half back and forth. Crazy commutes. Right. Listening to books on tape, whereas if it was a virtual professional learning opportunity, they were getting three hours of really highly sophisticated, good professional learning opportunities and conversations. Mm. Mm. So I think that um, moving forward, that's here to stay. You hear people now saying, is it in person or is it online? And being online just because of the efficiency of, you know, where, where you are, you're more likely to sign in as opposed to if I had to drive an hour, I may not get there in time. Oh, I'm not going. I I really can't sign up for that. Um, And it really has um, changed the landscape, at least in the organizations in New Jersey for methods of offering professional learning going forward. We now recognize that we need to consider varying options. Um, and also webinars and asynchronous learning. Before there was some like 
hidden, I don't want to say agenda, but people kind of didn't value it as right. much as, right. you know, either in person. So this whole concept of synchronous versus asynchronous um, is changing. And more people are using the vocabulary and understanding what it means and kind of discussing what high quality, effective delivery and content looks like in an online environment. Agreed. Agreed. When you said, uh, when you use the phrase behaved, and I know before I've heard you say, we behaved our way through the pandemic, which I think is such a fabulous term. And then we were making modifications on the spot based on the situations. But now we have an opportunity to envision a whole new future. You and I both hate the word return to normal. We're going back to back. We're going back. Right. Or the new normal. It's like, oh, for heaven's sakes. In my past history as a district supervisor back when I was in the Jersey City Public Schools, my title was Supervisor of Programs That Maximize Potential. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that and you kind of understand what does that mean, it meant that I had the flexibility to create new and innovative programs. It included gifted and talented and things like that. So I was always looking for an out-of-the-box solution or a creative program that would excite people and engage people um, at a different level using, you know, I don't want to just say new tools, but, you know, new ways of thinking um, and new ways of knowing. So when we start to talk about the word reimagine or reinvent or um, re-anything, re-anything, I think um, for those people who I would like to just use the word imagine or invent, um, as opposed to the report. But what it does is it gives people permission to say, okay, we have what we have, now let's change it up. So for some folks who are afraid of change or don't know what it means, it kind of provides that transition point to get them to the next level. And I'm okay with using in that the words in those terms, but when we put those words out there broadly to our stakeholders, parents, community, um, I think that, um, the words like going back to the way we were before the right. pandemic sets the stage for an image that school is going at all levels, graduates, universities, that it's this sit and get lecture model or that, you know, classrooms still have chairs and rows. And Nancy, you know, for decades, um, with I've your been work trying. Technology <laughs> classroom and, you know, um, different kind of learning styles and things like that. We know that's not the way the visual images look, but even in the media. When you watch movies about schools, it's very unusual to see non-current, more non-traditional classroom looks as opposed to traditional ways that school has continuously been. Ingrained in us. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I so, think if you, so do you think then also that instead of retire, we should just call it tire? <laughs> well, I would tell you that I not that you know what retired you that I'm tired, but again, I think I've just moved on to a different body of work that embodies the work in new and different ways. Um, mm -hmm. One of the areas that I thoroughly enjoy working in is integrating the arts at all levels for everybody, adults. And you, you know, work with is it the George Street Playhouse? Yep, in New Jersey. I'm a board member and I'm the chair of their education committee. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm going to use these terms. I like this word a lot. I use now often. We took the pause mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. 
I will say, reimagine, reinvent some educational programming for a theater. Um, we're taking a pause in some other programming that I do for other entities to reflect. And I think that idea of a reflective practitioner is exactly what you're talking about. What did we learn in the pandemic, during the pandemic? What do we know are best practices that are sustainable now that we've tried to implement some of these, you know, actions like modifying assignments, changing timelines? Wait, don't roll over that one. Modifying assignments was big in your chapter. It made, I looked at that and I was like, that's good. That it was just, let's just not do the same assignments we used to do. So talk more about that. Well, on that point, there were some assignments. See, we're going to be all over the place here. I hope the audience can keep up. <laughs> well, um, they'll be good with this. Um, I think myself and my colleagues all recognize that some of the assignments that we had in place either were um, dictated by being in person or experiential things that they couldn't do because of the pandemic. Um, for instance, one of mine um, in my graduate level internship course was to conduct part of a family or a community meeting with parents and community members. Well, since nobody could come out in person and possibly because parents didn't have the technology at home yet, since this was at the beginning, it had come up with an alternative kind of um, assignment that fit that, you know, the flavor of the internship. And I remember creating an assignment about um, creating a school of innov innovation with all of the components that we knew about, you know, schooling, governance, curriculum, parental involvement in a virtual world. I have to tell you, the results of that assignment were phenomenal. Um, they created um, innovative titles. They had philosophies around education. They were really, really innovative and creative. So in that regard, I've kept that assignment after the pandemic. Um, you know, when I taught the course the next time, it was better than the the assignment that I used the, as an example, one assignment that I used differently. And I know both um, John and um, Christine did the same in their um, situations. So I think um, the kinds of assignments though, I'm the kind of person who likes to change it up all the time um, and you know, continually make my assignments different, current, depending on trends, in ed leadership, um, things like that, um, design-inspired leadership. But again, it even forced me to think a little bit more creatively on how we can look at this in a virtual lens. Well, and I think it goes back to what you said before, how we used to create the syllabus and hand it out for the entire semester course, rather than creating the course almost or, or modifying as we're moving to fit the needs of the students. And I know um, at, at IDE, in our consulting world, one of our uh, goals is to be intensely user-focused, that it's not about what I want to get across. It's about who is the person that I'm working with and what do they need and where are they at? And I saw that parallel in your chapter, that the idea is we need to look at the students. We need to, you mentioned, have relationships. We need to build better relationships with them. We need to find out what their stressors are. And you and your co-authors talk a lot about that, getting to know the students and then craft the, the uh, course, if you will, around that. I mean, how, how uh, you know, I know with universities, there is a lot of, this is my syllabus, this is you know, where I must go. You know, to what extent can we give university professors the 
um, leeway, if you will, to know generally this is our content, but to be able to, you know, the goal would be get to know your students from day one and craft your course around it. I think since we were in the education leadership department, um, our goal is always about effective leadership development. So rather than trying to control what areas of leadership or styles of leadership through our assignments that we would hope students would focus on, I think it goes back to the idea that we could have a framework in a syllabus with um, assignment areas listed with some requirements, but always having options for students to choose from to better fit their either situation that they're experiencing out in you know their their educational environment or their personal interests and passions and also you know areas that would inspire continued learning i always you know again as i said i i was the supervisor of programs that maximize potential and one of my um hardwired aspects of whatever i try to do is always have an option called other so if someone has a particular stream that they're going on and it fits, but you give them the option of, you know, if I have to give the content, then they do, you know, can give it back to me in a different fashion. If I choose the medium, then they can talk about, you know, flexibility and content. But I often think, and I, I use these terms in my own head when I'm scheduling um, or designing my syllabus, is that it's almost like an independent study. Even though you're in a class and you're in a cohort, um, the idea here is that the assignments should be yours and they should fit your particular situation, applying it to your school, your district, your leadership needs um, that gives you the flexibility within the parameters of the assignment to delve deeply and feel like you you learn something. Because my goal always is, and again, I think my colleagues as well, but again, when we look at the university bureaucracy structure as a whole in our country or in different places, um, there may be stringent requirements that don't allow this. But um, the idea here would be to take the products of your assignments that are practitioner-based that could turn into projects when you're in your real-life situation. Again, continues that learning beyond the walls, let's say, or the square of the screen that you're involved in when you're in my class. I want you to use the products that you develop as part of the assignments or the syllabus in a class to be able to use it as part of a professional portfolio if you're going for a job interview or to give experience to certain kinds of things you've created um, that you can use out in the field. It reminds me of a conversation I was having recently about how people learn when they're trying to build a website or something. And the idea is that in the moment you're saying, oh, how can I put this header in? So you, you're, you're in a situational experiential moment where you have, as my favorite phrase, a felt need. And then what do you do? You Google it. I mean, fundamentally, everything you need to learn today is online. So where we need our university professors as well as our K-12 teachers is to build the stuff that's not online, facilitating those conversations, the higher order thinking, the application of that to your situation. Right. Yeah. I think that's the, the piece. It's the application to the real life situation right. that people find valuable. Um, it's not about, let me fill your head with all this stuff 
and then feel free to go off on your own and figure out how you're going to attach it to your life. You know, well, one of the, the things I know that we chatted just for a moment before we, you know, started the official recording here um, was the idea of, you know, how should we approach the information in this chapter? And I know I said to you, people, I don't want to, you know, do this as a run through of the chapter's content and titles because people could read the chapter. Um, you know, so the idea here is to talk about, right, and for us to just kind of give them some examples and just have conversation about the thinking behind the kinds of things that really do, and I keep using the word teachable moments, that make teachable moments authentic aha moments. And I can use this in the future. And I really understand this now. And I get this. Um and how I can use it again in my situation, depending on how I can turn it around or transfer it out there in another situation. So I'm going to throw out and I'm actually going to pick your brain now for my next book because <laughs> I'm, I'm working you know, on a book. In the past, but can we do it together? But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on a book on, on designing virtual schools and because a lot of places are now saying we really need to have that virtual school option. And virtual school can't just be what we did during the pandemic, which is send everybody home, put a camera on the teacher and start talking. You know, that's not virtual school. It takes into account everything you're talking about. <clears throat> so one of the first things I've come up with is, and I hearken back to good old Al Einstein, you know, Albert Einstein had said, I never teach my pupils. I only create the conditions through which they learn. And I you know, started thinking and I've developed a list of what I consider these essential conditions, one being academic resilience. So think about it. Academic resilience means if you get stuck, that you don't just throw everything up in the air and go home, but that you know how to work through, that you've got that grit, if you will, to work through. If you are working with adult learners or K-12 students in person, you can see those moments when they are frustrated or about to give up and you can delve in. When you are virtual, chances are you're just going to lose your learner. So for instance, we need to create very specific structures to build academic resilience in order to be successful. Another you mentioned actually is the virtual community of learners. We have to assemble uh, the, the students as a virtual community of learners so that they depend on others in different ways. And I'll just toss one more in self-advocacy. We have to ensure that our remote learners can advocate for themselves when they are stuck. You know, can they be, well, another one is resourcefulness. Can they find what they need? And, and if they really are stuck? Do they know how to reach out? What are the What's the framework for reaching out? Because otherwise you lose them. And I think particularly in university life where the future is going to be, you know, it's a revenue producer by having more and more students. If your students have the experience of like, oh, you know, it was just too hard online or I didn't like that or I, they, they can now go to any university in the world Whereas before, if you lived near Jersey City, you went to NJCU, but now you can go anywhere. So now I think all universities have to think to be competitive. How do we apply this idea of essential conditions for learning in a virtual environment? These are conditions that are nice to have in the classroom, in a physical space, 
but they're absolutely essential in a virtual world. Because if my students are academically resilient in the physical space, that's good. But if they're not, I can dive in and work with them. And, but in the virtual world, I just lose them. All right. So I'm just throwing that out. What do you think of that, Adele? And what have you seen in terms of what I'm calling the essential conditions for engaging your learners? I like the terminologies that you're using and also the descriptions that you're advocating for, because I think it breaks new ground for the way we talk about um, setting up educational situations and also the way we then work towards making them more effective. So the idea of academic resiliency, you're absolutely right. Um, I think a, a lot of modeling needs to happen. Um, I know we do that in, in in-person classrooms, but in a virtual situation, it may require from the beginning for people, adults who think, oh, I know everything I need to know, or I've done that before, and this is the way we've done it, that there are new avenues of ways to um, look at perspectives, um, to look at the content, and also new kinds of sources. Um, I think through a research-based perspective, we need to emphasize current research. Yes, there's a body of established research, but I think we need to help adults particularly um, now learn from this body of research a little bit about what did we learn from the COVID pandemic time. Um, we know that a plethora of books and articles have been written. They were written throughout that period. And even now they may seem dated, but as reflective practitioners, we should still be reading that stuff right. um, and kind of applying it in new and novel ways. Um, so that's part of it. This idea of virtual community, it's here to stay. Mm -hmm. we're, we're never going back to an all in-person model of anything, not socially, not for our families, not in education, not in business, not in medicine. I can't ever imagine um, a time when there possibly is only going to be an in-person model for schooling. Um, so we now need to create those and we need to move beyond the square box of Zoom and Google Meet and WebEx and all of those things um, to try to create, I want to say, visually attractive, stimulating kinds of environments that are engaging for students. I guess I'm going to refer to the Thomas Friedman article in the New York Times when the pandemic started and say that his words to us as educators were that after, you know, at the conclusion of the pandemic within the next 10 years, education is going to be the most changed industry of all industries across the world, let's say. Amen. Amen. Right. So when I heard that um, two years ago and heard him say that, I kept envisioning new tools. And I think that will be the next horizon for education in these next short term, I want to say months and years. 10 years from now, the year is 2032. How will Adele Makula be inventing education in 2032? Notice I didn't say reinventing. I, oh God. Um, I would still see myself really actively involved. I was going to say, you're sitting there going like, will I be retired? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I often in the past have said 
there are certain things that I would do exactly the same way that I did as a first year teacher and the things I would never do again that way. Um, you learn and behave your way, you know, to a new level and a, a new way of learning and a new way of knowing. Um, I would hope that I stay ahead of the curve, um, always trying to challenge the status quo, um, pushing people forward, like about not just their thinking, but their delivery. But I see teaching and learning being really, really exciting for instructors. I want to say educators for people who aspire to be teachers. I, and, and that's where I see myself as um, an advocate over the next few, few years. I think teaching in general has a bad reputation out there right now in a lot of different ways. And we see teacher shortages for a host of different reasons. And in order for us and for our youngsters to become successful adults, um, and an educated citizenry, I sound like, you know, but I think education is the foundation of that. And I would think I would continue to still advocate for the profession of teaching. Um, I think leadership, I see myself continuing to groom and grow um, school and education leaders, as you had said, to be resilient and advocates um, so I think it come from that lens um, in terms of not just the teaching and learning perspective, but the leadership perspective. Well, um, and a shout out to one of your future colleagues, Michael Littlejohn, who apparently used to say some people are maintainers and some people are builders. So may we all be builders of a very different, exciting and powerful future for learners at all ages. Thanks for being with me, Adele. Thanks for having me, Nancy. This was great. And it will be powerful as we listen to this and reflect upon it and keep moving forward. So thank you. Well, that's a wrap. I'm glad you could join me. I hope you'll subscribe, like, and share this podcast and help me spread the word about the power of learning. Till next time.